Well, tonight's talk is about love and wisdom. Uh, This was written by Henry David Thoreau in his uh, journal about wildflowers. This is February 5th, 1852. I suspect that the child plucks its first flower with an insight into its beauty and significance, which the subsequent botanist never retains. In some ways, our practice is meant to help us open our heart so that we see like the child in us did, just like that. And yet, the journey of the child through adulthood is to develop wisdom. So that openness of heart um, doesn't have the strength and protection that it needs to be that open. This is the paradox of the human journey. So when we use the phrase, the the traditional um, translation that I first heard, may we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, this is, you know, even if we say may I be safe, it's very important to understand what we mean by that. You know, what what is truly possible in this human world, or in this world. So one of the meanings of that is that the inner harm, being protected from inner harm, is being protected from greed, hatred, and delusion in ourselves. Which is, it's very important to understand this. And outer harm would be any way we're hurt because of what? Others, greed, hatred, and delusion, right? So when we say, may we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, we're meaning that, you know, we're going in the direction of being free of greed, hatred, and delusion, and others. That's the harm. So um, I don't. I don't regret not knowing that the uh, the first half of the retreat was metta because, you know, it's very important to have that almost constant um, reminding that metta is is love infused with wisdom. It's the openness of heart infused with wisdom or else that openness of heart isn't protected. It's why we shut down in the first place.
so open and connected and strong. Open and connected and strong. The strength is the protection. So we can say that metta is unconditional love and wisdom, the equanimity that's included in wisdom is unconditional acceptance. They're both unconditional without conditions. So the love infused by wisdom, it's a, ge- it's a genuine love that isn't making demands. It's not making demands on ourselves or others. And the unconditional acceptance is really, uh, when equanimity is present, it's totally okay that whatever you want to have um, disappeared forever, that it's come back. Because you're, you're totally protected. Your mind is totally protected. It sees so clearly. The wisdom is so strong that nothing will bother you. There's no resistance to anything because you, you see everything clearly. It's just fear. It's just, it's just greed. It's just, there's no need to act on any of it or be bothered by any of it, to get rid of any of it. So we say, you know, there's this vast range of joy and sorrow in the world. But, you know, where do we, where do we tend to have um, disconnected and shut down? Where do we do that? You might be going along fine with metta, some, something falls out. It could be boredom, it could be low energy, it could be sleepiness, it could be naivete. The near, the near enemy, the experience that seems so much like unconditional love but isn't, is any kind of naivete or attached love. Not the genuine sentimentality. They seem like metta, but they aren't. The opposite, as Steve said, is, is anger. And we f- when we feel the kind of shift where we, we can't maintain it, um, some of the talk is about this, what to do. Um, but I wanted to talk about that often it's when something unpleasant happens. So it could be that the energy goes down when we're doing metta, but we don't notice that we're having aversion to it. We're having aversion to the loss of the, the strength of the metta, and maybe it's just simply we could have shifted the metta to the boredom, or we could have shifted the metta to the sleepiness. You see, we've disconnected. We've resisted what? Change that we can't control. So the teaching that's so important, again, from the wisdom side, is, is a teaching on Vedana, that yes, there's the six sense doors we're born into, the six sensitivities, and with each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling simultaneously happening with each sight, smell, taste, touch, you know, emotion, thought, it's like, Anything that appears will have a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. 
Now that's the world that we're all born into. It's something we all share so deeply with also the, um, with a slug, with an eagle, with all beings, Vedana. Except for the devas who just have pleasant, <laughs> you know, there's the realms that don't have it, you know, there's more than just the devas. But in terms of, let's just stay with the human world, um, the vast range of joy and sorrow is because of the vast range of pleasant and unpleasant. So, you know, it's like we have to have that um, wisdom, even if you chose to do one being this whole retreat, not even yourself, you would go through it all. <laughs> you would just, you'd go through it all. So a lot of the time in our practice, when we're doing this practice, it's like the, there's inevitably a need to stop and open up and work with accepting the unpleasant. Whether it happened 25 years ago, three lifetimes ago, or two seconds ago. That, that, that we have that deep fundamental understanding that it's a fact. The fact of it. And we, we, because we believe we can control, we have doubt because we actually think we should be able to control it. And it's so sad we don't understand why we're suffering. <coughs> and this is going to happen whether it's Vipassana or Metta retreat or you're not on retreat or on retreat. This is just life as it is. This is a, a question asked to Srinazargadatta Maharaj, a great teacher from India that's no longer alive. The question is, is all imaginable unreal? So he said, imagination based on memories is unreal. Yet the future is not entirely unreal. And the question is, which part of the future is real and which is not? And Maharaji said, the unexpected and unpredictable is real. To really get that, that the unpredictable is what is real. That's really being in a tune. That's the wisdom. It's like that it's changing that fast and that that's our home. The home is in the unexpected. And so, of course, when, you know, you've heard me define mindfulness as Suzuki Roshi did, uh, as soft readiness. Soft readiness is the wisdom. It's just, it's being ready for anything to happen. Because that's the truth. It's again the fact of it, that anything is going to happen and will happen. And so metta, being able to um, develop and cultivate the loving kindness to um, 
this place of understanding that when we meet the unpredictable moment by moment with kindness, it softens the heart. It softens resistance. And it makes this acceptance of how things are far more accessible. And this is... um, For many years, that's been the main reason why we teach this. It's just that to see the difference in all of you who've been doing this for some time, it's like the difference in the the struggling with the resistance, because it's the resistance to what's happening that's so so painful. When we accept it, that, that thorn in the heart gets pulled out. So mainly what I'm trying to do right now is sorry, <coughs> present that sense of um, reminding us all that it's not just about opening the heart. It's about having this strength of, in the Brahma-vihara practice <coughs> of the metta, the kindness that will um, connect with whatever appears with this kindness. So there's far less suffering. (coughs) I'd like to give a very light example of a um, (coughs) student that died recently that um, had come to a retreat in Honolulu. And uh, in that place, in the back of this valley, there are so many roosters it, you know, it's amazing. There's, the, you know, there's not as many this year, this past year as the, that year. It was a few years ago. But um, this this friend student was sleeping in a place where it was like he was getting a symphony all night. You know, there's that there's that myth that they crow, you know, at dawn. But these roosters were up all night, and um, he he came in for an interview, and he was so angry. You know, he was just he was tired and. You know, he just hated the place and all this doubt in himself and the place. And um, so I said, well, have you tried metta? (laughs) And he hadn't, you know. And so a couple days later, he raised his hand in the hall during the question period, and he had named them all different names by the different sound, you know, so there was Fred and Tom and Stanley and, you know, he just had names for them all and he had developed a relationship with them and he wasn't angry anymore. You know, and it's, it's a sweet story, but it's very, I mean it very seriously. Very seriously. He wasn't protected. He had no relationship. He had no interest in a relationship. And he was suffering terribly. He was angry at everything and all of us. You know, it's just like really something was wrong with the place, right? And after this, it was the best place he had ever sat, right? He had all these friends. It's amazing how it can change, right?
so one example that's given of metta is the experience of metta is when um, a mother cow makes eye contact with a newborn calf. Now you see that is quite a relationship, right? It's like um, the teaching with loving kindness is that it is absolutely not about behavior. If you're having trouble with yourself or someone, it's, it's not about behavior. It's about finding the, the essence of the being, the newborn, of the, uh, the, the very newborn without all the behavior. None of us are free from greed, hatred, and delusion. So we, some of our behavior is not likable. It's not a cause for uh, conditional love. But metta is unconditional. Any parent uh, with a newborn, unless they're really messed up, or if we brought a newborn, you know, chick, chicken in here, we'd go, oh, you know, never mind a human. But it's like we are, we have that feeling of just, we tend to, if we're not messed up in the moment, we tend to wish that newborn well. And we know that that newborn is going to face all the vicissitudes of life, all the ups and downs. The worst job description is being a parent because you know you can't protect your children Totally, right? And yet, that's, the love is, is, is there, that genuine love is in the face of that. And what is so amazing to me about what the Buddha taught is that he taught us that we can cultivate that for everyone. All beings. That genuine love beyond the behavior and that's the basis for all the other Brahma Viharas. Because it's, when I say finding the heart, it's finding a relationship with that part of you that usually gets shut down. It closes, I'm trying to explain. It closes because a newborn can't handle pain, right? That range of joy and sorrow, a newborn heart can't bear it yet. It takes time and skill, <laughs> training. So the metta is meant to, um, that connection between these two parts of ourselves is critical. And what I've seen over years of teaching is that, and in myself, is that mostly we can find one part. And so there's, say it's the father cow or mother cow and the baby cow. Usually a person can find the mother cow or the father cow, or a person can find the baby cow. But usually it doesn't come all put together, folks. You get one or the other. And the work is getting it, getting which part is for me. You know, my mother was completely non-functional. I didn't have that part very well developed. And when I started trying to do this, it took me a long time to see, oh, the mother cow, I'd try to do the meta, and within seconds, the mother cow would be so tired. It would be like, and I'd be like, I can't do this anymore, ugh, you know? And it's just like, 
that part was tired already. And I was so judgmental of it. Ah, merciless. And I've seen over time that if I did the amount that I could do, it would grow. And if I stepped on it with poisonous disdain, it would send me back. So it's important for you to see if you can access the uh, part that the young part of you that still is open, you didn't kill it. Great. But usually that means you can't find the other part. And it's if you can't do the metta for very long, that's fine. Do the amount you can. One second, two hours, whatever. And then it, it'll, the, the bottom will sort of drop out of it and you can do some compassion. So that it's like you, when, the, when you feel like you can't do something anymore in this practice, just wait. Don't, you don't have to pounce on it. And see, it could be that just shifting back to Vipassana or maybe a little mudita. And when, this, when, the, when those two parts of ourselves, this is the duality, this is the receiver and the sender, if you want a different language. There's a receiving the metta, there's a sending the metta. When those two come together and they, there's, a, there's a shifting to the abiding where there's no, no sender or receiver, then great. That's great too. You just abide there. But please, I've said this already, but please don't feel like abiding is better. Receiving sending is really important and it's all part of the different ways the practice unfolds. You could say, the re- when I use the language of baby cow, that's the receiver. The sender is the mother or father cow. And this, this relationship of metta with yourself is e- extremely healing. Because otherwise you don't have a relationship with yourself. If those two don't come together, there's no relationship. And you can see this, you see this in practice with resistance. If we have a part of us that just can't do something, we can't, we, we don't, we can't be with aversion, we can't be with sleepiness, whatever it is, what's happening is the system is going, <coughs> no. <laughs> and sometimes you'll feel like that terrible two stage, right? No, no, I said no. You know, I don't want to do this anymore, right? And... Uh, We push it. We don't listen. So that means (coughs) you've disconnected from your system and there's less trust. Less listening, less trust, less listening, less trust. Whereas you could just go, oh, oh, what did you say? (laughs) No. (laughs) I can't do it right now. And then, then, if you listen to it, then there's this and you know you're you're with the unpredictable, right? It's changed, and you can shift to listening and skillful means. Well, what would be helpful now? 
this is not a failure. It's going with the change. Of course, life is constantly changing. And that's why we learn so many skills, so many, that there's four Brahma VRs, not just one. <clears throat> so the resistance is a kind of protection. It means the metta did fall away, or the mindfulness did drop away. And we need to um, shift to a different kind of protection, different practice. When I first did my, well, when I did my first retreat, it was in 1975, and um, boy, it was hard. (sighs) I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I would say, when I left that retreat, what I had learned was that at least 98% of my experience wasn't acceptable to me. And it was really horrifying. Like, I was like, wow. It was hard to face, but it was true. And, you know, I can look back at that and just be so... um, just amazed and grateful that I had the good fortune to find this. And this is somewhat how you measure maybe every five years your practice. Is there, is there a little more acceptance? Is there a little more softening to what is happening It's always what is happening versus what I want to have happening. What is happening versus what I want to have happening. And in terms of our, I think we're very um, impatient with this process. And I think we tend to feel impatience and we'll feel like we should be patient versus you can stop, wait, and just see that you actually could send some metta or compassion to the impatience. If you haven't tried that yet, I I can imagine... um, it's, it's impossible for us not to get impatient with this process. <laughs> and I think what's also so hard is we, we have been trained so well in using our willpower to get things done and, and to make things happen. And this is so totally different. It's the mindfulness, the metta, the compassion, the mudita, the equanimity, the... It's, those are what we're dropping into, and they don't respond to willpower.
There's a um, very interesting philosopher, Blaise Pascal, that was born in 1623, and he died at age 39 in France. He's a great mathematician and philosopher. <clears throat> and he said, <clears throat> in difficult times, carry something beautiful in your heart. Ah, it's so simple, but it's so important. So in difficult times, <clears throat> usually that's when um, you shift to compassion. Uh, and the Buddha said that it, it's the, the helplessness that we feel in the face of suffering that is the proximate cause of compassion. Um, these are such important teachings because I think most of us have been trained that when helplessness appears, that something's really wrong. And actually the Buddha taught that it was everything, if you could open to the helplessness, that you could get to compassion. So we will feel that on a retreat, of course, we'll feel the helplessness in the face of our own suffering at times, never mind with other, you know, others. So I think I want to just repeat again that when there's, um, there's always a recipe for doubt. And of course, helplessness and doubt are very related. <clears throat> so it's that sense that the pain in the world shouldn't be there or that we should be able to control it where we start veering off from accepting the aversion to the pain. So really what's happening is that something unpleasant has appeared in the body, the mind, the heart. And actually there's aversion, but we miss it. And then we get can spiral into feeling like it's, you know, it's all our fault that there, you know, whatever pain has happened. My favorite is when I really spiral, it's, it's not okay that it's not okay and it's all my fault. You know, it goes, you know, it goes from it's not okay to it's not okay that it's not okay to it's not okay that it's not okay and it's all my fault. And then it'll kind of go self-hatred <clears throat> big time. And if it's important, with, with anything in practice, this is the one I always say to people, you know, reflect back a little bit. You might have to reflect back three hours or five minutes, but you can usually find that there's something painful that we miss the aversion to, and we spiraled out. So, in other words, um, we get overwhelmed by the unpleasant. Is that right? It's like we get, say, it can be hip pain, it can be knee pain, it can be sadness or grief, it can be anything that's unpleasant. It could be the sound of an oyster catcher. If you're not in the right mood, they're very grating. You know, <laughs> it can be. Well, the Big Dipper's in the wrong place if you come here from Hawaii. Whatever it is, you know, it doesn't have to be rational. It's often not. But to, to really try to make space again, I just encourage you, 
when you feel doubt, often it's very hard to recognize because the thought patterns are, they tend to be just for us. Just the particular thought that will get you. It's amazing. You know, it's amazing. So aversion to pain is very different than doubt. And it's learning how to make, understand that and make space for it. And, and sometimes, you know, some of us get that very, you know, that feeling that the pain is unbearable. And it, that's where it can be easy to, to shift into hopelessness and despair. And that, the, as Stephen said last night, the compassion is the quality of the awareness that's witnessing the caring about the pain. Caring about pain is pleasant. And learning that, um, I find that um, most of us wait till it gets really bad to try it to try compassion, which is not really fair, is it? You know, so if you try practicing compassion with something before, like, unbearable, hopeless despair, you could maybe learn it a little easier, right? You know, it's just... Ah. Um, Yes, want to throw it and we'll see. Wow. I think it was a good throw. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Where did you find it? <laughs> I have a joke with Jesse that, you know, when I die and my body disintegrates, all that's going to be left is cough drops. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they look for other things with people, you know, like some radiant bone, but no, mine's going to be an un, un, undone cough drop. <laughs> Swiss kiss, or whatever, what is it? <laughs> like it, this certain kind. Anyway, so I like to give the example, like if, if I had a very big wound on my hand right now, and somebody came toward me, and they see it, and they connect. They visually see it, they connect with the pain, but they get overwhelmed, and they go, and they start going, oh, that's horrible, Michelle, and they, okay, they fall on the floor, they're crying, and I'm like, right? Is that helpful? No, but it happens. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm more that type anyway, you know, so I'm not, I'm giving an exaggerated example of the people who connect and drown. And then another type, might, the opposite type comes along. They come through the door. You can already see they're slowing down, right? They saw it. They disconnected. They can't handle it. But they pretend they can. So they slow down. They're looking at it. They're looking at you. They, they barely get there. They've kept their distance. They're looking at it. They're not there. They get away as quickly as possible. But they don't know it. They don't even know they're doing it. That, does, that feels just as terrible, right? Neither of them are compassion. And we do this with ourselves endlessly. 
we're the type, we're both types with ourselves. Very important to see that how, if you have some little pain here and there and you're resisting a bit, that's the time to practice compassion, not when you're down for the count. Not that you don't need it when you're down for the count, but usually then it's harder to not get swept away in, with the aversion to the pain. But to, when, you, when we talk about compassion, it literally is if my left hand is a compassionate awareness and the right hand is painful, you have to practice for yourself. This isn't about me right now. It's about where is the distance that you can find inside it, outside it, that you can feel a pleasant feeling of care. Well, sometimes you have to start way out here. Or you can see what it's like to connect and drown. You have to... We think we're going to make a mistake, but of course we're just going to... What's the mistake of going in and, and getting some grief and sorrow? That's not a mistake. That's connecting and really feeling it. <clears throat> I tend to find I'm the type that goes in, feels that grief, and then comes out and can feel compassion. Other people are the type that step way back and realize, wow, <laughs> kind of far away here, getting a little indifferent, not caring, come closer. It's all just a matter of practice, endlessly. This is one of our most important practices in this world. There's so much pain in the world. There's so much joy in the world. So learning how to care about it and appreciate it <clears throat> is everything. <clears throat> and so if your system says, no, I can't do that, do you push it? Right? No. It's a f- this practice the means and ends are the same. It's like if you can't if you can't practice the compassion, you you move away. You move away from the pain. That's a form of metta. That's a form of compassion. And it would be just our our um greed that would be forcing it. As we go on, we'll be giving longer talks about compassion and mudita, but I wanted to give a little taste of each so that when you do, when the bottom drops out of metta or whatever Brahma-vihara you're doing, you remember that there is, you can kind of wait and see what would be appropriate. So the mudita, just as we can find the openness of heart and strengthen that openness of heart, with loving kindness, then the the second is you're orienting this openness of heart toward the pain and caring about it. And the third is you're orienting the openness of heart to the joy and pleasure in the world and appreciating it.
So I always find if things are getting too heavy, too serious, you know, finding something to be joyful with or enjoy or pleasure is really important. And this place is like a gold mine. It's almost like everywhere you turn, you know, there's a tulip or, you know, an eagle or, you know, it's not hard, folks, this one here. And of course, of course, there'll be times when you can't connect with it or see it. That's the time you get in your, under your covers and just wait it out. Sometimes it can be that bad, right? If you can't, if you can't, you know, go in the garden and kind of look at a tulip or have some food here or go down to the beach or whatever and it's still, t- if you're still feeling overwhelmed, that's, a, that's, a, that happens. It's fine. You get cozy into the covers and wait it out. I call it hiding from the hindrances. <laughs> I say, let's hide from the hindrances and jump in, you know. <laughs> you have to have some humor with this, especially a multiple hindrance attack, you know. You get them all, you know. It's like sleepiness, then restlessness, then attachment, then aversion, then doubt, wham, you know. it's. It's hard. I'm not one to say that this is easy. (laughs) I think it's hard. Sometimes it's easy. If it was easy, we'd have all these fully enlightened beings walking around. There's a um, a woman who lives across the street from me that lives there part-time from Alaska, and she's a whale researcher. And this year she invited, um, she called it a kind of rock star of the whale researchers uh, to visit, but I was too busy (laughs) to meet her. Um, But I um, heard about her and read about her Um, Katie Payne and many years ago her husband um, decided to study whales and uh, he was a biologist and she was uh, studied music at Cornell so she was a musicologist and um, was always sort of treated very much as secondary and not important in all the early whale researching but because of her love of music and her understanding of music, to make a long story short, she was the first one who understood that the whales were singing on this planet. And she, she finally figured out that they not only were singing, but they're composers, and they compose different themes. And um, it turned out that over, you know, 20 over 20 years went by when people finally discovered that she actually was the one that understood this and um, was responsible for 80% of the research on the songs of whales. Um, and then later on they went through a divorce and she was in, she, they had three kids and she went to um, a zoo in Portland she was having so much, you know, sadness and grief and going through such a hard time. 
because she went to the zoo because she heard a baby elephant had been born there. Uh, and she hung out for a week. So I'd like to read you um, what happened. And I noticed little by little through that week that I was feeling over and over a throbbing in the air, a change of pressure in my ears that would occur when I was near the elephant cages, but not when I was in other parts of the zoo. And I knew just enough, perhaps because of the whale studies, to know that there is sound below the pitches of the sound that human beings can hear. And lo and behold, we discovered there was a whole other communication system there that no one had known about. It was just below the frequencies our ears could hear. So she, she has a whole research project in Africa for many years now of um, elephant singing. Pretty amazing. She's asked um, in an interview that her work with elephants and whales, if it had made her think differently about what it means to be human. And she said, well, the ocean is really huge. When you get out in a little boat, you know it. You're clinging to a cork. It's huge, and it's capable of immense hugeness. And out there, you know, rolling around and swimming through and perfectly at home in the waves are these enormous animals. And by golly, they're singing, of all things. They're doing something that we recognize as singing. And so what that has done for me is to make me feel that what lies ahead to be discovered is absolutely limitless. We are not at the pinnacle of human knowledge. We're just beginning. I think it was in um, maybe 1979 or 80, um, I spent a day by myself with Thich Nhat Hanh, and I was showing around him around this meditation center. Um, it, it was uh, wonderful to be with someone who it felt as if every step he took was reverent. Just every step touching the earth. He had such reverence. It was um, such a privilege to spend the day with him. And um, he walked very slowly, not too slowly, but slowly, and then he'd walk very reverently, but then he'd stop, and when he would look at anything, he would look reverently. Uh, very moving. And I, I just want to say, you know, I, I actually feel like I know how hard retreat is. <laughs> I just came from doing a month in March, and um, 
I think the possibility of us even taking one reverent step is so moving and so important. Um, and the you know Steve gave that direction of like the, with the, our eyes that you know like then we're seeing there can be metta. It's possible, right? It's like there, with the hearing there can be some metta for what is heard or our ear door. It's like with the sense doors, with the heart center. You don't even have to know what the reverence is for. It's like more like an abiding, abiding in the reverence. Because there's this, I think if we don't understand that life is sacred, that we can't be ethical. Yeah, it'll. It's just that that sense that you'll feel sometimes these waves of of real sacredness, and it can be when you're eating or when you're bored. Or it, it, be careful of feeling like the the sense of sacred or holy has to be um, in a certain place or in a certain way. And not, you don't have to, it can be glimpses. And I I think that part of that is the more that we see that um, we're not trying to get rid of fear that when we really totally unconditionally accept that we can have a relationship with the fear, for example, we're no longer afraid of it. And in in that understanding, there's absolutely no reason to ever get rid of fear. Why would we? We have that relationship, or anger, or any of the difficult emotions. It's, I really don't understand how it could possibly be taught differently. It's about relationship, not getting rid of. It's like trying to get rid of the clouds, or the sun, or the grass, or you know, the whales, or you know, it's 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 this it's crazy. It's crazy to think we're gonna cut out all our emotions to be free. And be like cutting off your ear to be free. So that's the wisdom side. And I'd like to say that there are times when, you know, sometimes the, a karmic not of mine is, is terror. It's like when I really just have that, that awareness that totally accepts it, there's a complete relationship with it, no need to get rid of it. It passes through. There's such a deep contentment. More contentment than if it was with a thought or you know something else. That 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 sense of like uh, understanding what freedom is is so profound. So often the things that are really hard for us are difficult emotions. They'll feel like obstacles, but you'll see over time that if you could get rid of some of these things, you're never going to get free. Thank God there's some things that we can't get rid of. Because otherwise, (laughs) we think we could control everything. 
The things that you can't control the most are the things that are liberating you the most. And yet when you come to understand this, you don't have to be grateful for any of the horrible behaviors that happen in your life that hurt you, but you can be grateful and reverent for the process of getting liberated with it. So I'd like to end with um, Titnahan's getting very old, and um, he sure is hanging on there, you know. <laughs> but he's getting old, and I read this recently. Please do not build a stupa for me. Please do not put my ashes in a vase. Lock me inside and limit who I am. I know this will be difficult for some of you. If you must build a stupa then, please make sure that you put a sign on it that says, I am not here. (laughs) In addition, you can also put another sign that says, I am not out there either. (laughs) And a third sign that says, if I am anywhere, it is in your mindful breathing and in your peaceful steps. I think that's incredibly wise. And what we're, we all, that's a deep understanding of the practice. So let's sit for a minute. May we be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. It's time for the walking and then the metta chant sit. 